0: Now, Chelsea, have you been following what's been going on in the Colorado area with regards to the wildfires over the New Year's break?
1: Not in any detail. I know that they're happening. And I think I briefly heard a timeline, but I can't remember it.
0: Okay. Just outside of Boulder, Colorado, and in fact, in Boulder, Colorado, there's been a fairly large fires. It started on Thursday. I believe that's December the 30th. Snowfall, thankfully, has brought it under control and mostly out at this point, but while the Marshall fires they're calling it now was wreaking havoc, at least two people are left missing still, and more than 1,000 houses and businesses were destroyed or damaged in the fire that blitzed a 10-square-mile area in Boulder County around the towns of Superior and It has snowed, which has helped firefighters get the flames under control, but the snow has complicated the search for the two missing people and the investigation into the fire's origins, which still remain kind of heated, but has had a blanket put over it in the worst punny way to explain what's going on there. Now, I stumbled across information on this on the subreddit known as Collapse. There's an area between Denver and Boulder, called Rocky Flats. It used to be a plutonium weapons manufacturing plant. It has had a troubled history. I'm just going to run through it really quick and why it's being brought up with regards to the Marshall Fires. The Rocky Flats plant, a former U.S. nuclear weapons production facility, located about 15 miles northwest of Denver, caused radioactive... It's
1: only 15 miles?
0: Yeah, it's close. It's basically a suburb. Okay. Primarily plutonium radioactive contamination within and outside its boundaries. The contamination primarily resulted from two major plutonium fires in 1957 and 1969 and from wind-blown plutonium that leaked from the barrels of radioactive waste. Much lower concentrations of radioactive isotopes were released throughout the operational life of the plant from 1952 to 1992 and from the smaller accidents and from normal operational releases of plutonium particles too small to be filtered. Prevailing winds from the plant carried airborne contamination south and east into populated areas northwest of Denver. The contamination of the Denver area by plutonium from the fires and other sources was publicly reported until the 1970s. According to a 1972 study co-authored by Edward Martell, in the more densely populated areas of Denver, the plutonium contamination levels in surface soils is several times that of fallout.
1: And that's Denver.
0: And that's Denver. Denver. And the plutonium contamination just east of the Rocky Flats plant ranges up to hundreds of times that from nuclear tests. Exposure of a large population in the Denver area to plutonium and other radionuclides in the exhaust plumes from the plant date back to 1953. Now weapons production at the plant was halted after a combined FBI and EPA raid occurred in 1989 and years of protest. The plant has since been shut down with buildings demolished and completely removed from the site. The Rocky Flats plant was declared a Superfund site in 1989 and began its transformation to a cleanup site in 1992. Removal of the plant and surface contamination was largely completed in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and nearly all underground contamination was left in place. Measurable radioactive environmental contaminations in and around Rocky Flats will probably persist. The land formerly occupied by the plant is now Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge, and plans to make this refuge accessible for recreation have been repeatedly delayed due to lack of funding and protested by citizen organizations.
1: I'm surprised that this whole area is not a biohazard, including Denver. Would it not be considered that?
0: I have no idea. This is not my area of expertise. But I do know like areas like Chernobyl does have basically act as a wildlife sanctuary just for the fact that there's no humans
1: there. Yeah, it's not like a government wildlife sanctuary though.
0: Yeah, it's somewhat disturbing, but they they do say they've cleaned it up. So I don't know. They also do apparently watch and ensure that the radioactivity in the area stays low. But the person who posted this, it's a user on Reddit by the name of Fish Disciple. Did add some concerning areas about it, particularly the cleanup effort was originally projected to take 65 years and $37 billion to do properly, but after only 10 years and $7 billion, most of which went to administrators, the cleanup effort was heralded as a success and the Superfund site was opened up for both property development and recreation. One might argue the cleanup effort was half-assed or even deliberately negligent. For example, only the top three feet of contaminated soil was cleaned up even though contamination is known to be much deeper and natural processes routinely bring up soil from 16 feet and below. This is the case even when excluding criminal dumping and incineration of radioactive waste clandestinely undertaken by the plant. For nearly the last 20 years, there has been insufficient testing and monitoring of radioactive contamination in the area, which again is driven by commercial interests in the present day, basically saying it would be inconvenient for corporate interests, to actually have radioactivity there so they don't worry about
1: it. Yeah, of course it's the corporations in the end that have the final say in it, I guess. It is
0: imperative that those in impacted areas especially in the context of the Marshall Fires be aware of the clear and present danger namely plutonium-239 this is an alpha emitter meaning you can be harmed by breathing or ingesting its particulates so the reason it's brought up is because this is an area close to Boulder it's right in between Boulder and Denver should this area ever burn there's a distinct chance of ash and soil and debris and wind bring contamination from it basically wherever the winds may take it usually in a close area but hell winds We get smoke in Canada from wildfires in California. That stuff travels.
1: Not only that, I mean, with the weather changes that are happening today, it's not just this wildfire that's probably a risk to it. It's probably any number of things that are a risk to this. And how many people in the area know that there's like super high radiation levels?
0: Or at least was at one point, yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, how many of those people would continue living there, I wonder. But there's all these things you don't know, like... It could be like a million areas of the world for people who are trying to do cover-ups.
0: Yeah, and especially from this time period, because a lot of things during the Cold War were undertaken for the greater good of defeating the the Reds, the Communists, and are covered up fairly significantly. There was a response from a poster. On Reddit as well, by the name of Crispy Neggs, that I thought was important to look at here.
1: Reddit has some good usernames.
0: They have great usernames. They make everything sound super legit. Yeah. So he said, "Great to see info about Rocky Flats here. It was an absolute shit show from start to finish. Even though it's not finished, nor will it be for eons. Not only did they pick a terrible site to build the facility on, due to the population density nearby, they also managed to pick one of the windiest hillsides on Earth to build it on. For those wondering if they should move into those nice new neighborhoods they built along the Rocky Flats border." answer in my opinion is an astounding no. Nor would I ever personally visit any of the wildlife habitats, quote unquote. They so nicely opened up around it. I hate even driving by on 93 and avoid Marshall Road if I can. It's a good idea to educate yourself on the history of this place if you are considering moving to a nearby area and especially if you live in the nearby area. As sad and aggravating as that is, the DOE really did a number on this one and it shouldn't be allowed to be covered up by them. So this is an area that is being developed it has new houses going in there and it's something to be aware of
1: of course it's something to be made money on
0: this isn't even fire season this is the middle of december north america is not supposed to burn for another couple months
1: yeah we're in all sorts of trouble and then you add in plutonium and
0: and this is just one site that happened to be brought up While a forest fire was nearby, there are definitely more sites out there with regards to unknown contaminants of radiation in the soil that could cause harm. Scary. One to bring up to keep an eye on if you're in that area. And aren't we the fun time? Always. With that, let's ring in the new year and get back to what we do best educating you on fringe topics. From the unexplained to the mundane. Come join us on a Journey to the Fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. We are coming to you live from the steamy foreplay to the end of modern human civilization as we know it, more commonly known as the year 2022. We are your host, Taylor and Chelsea, here to educate you on all matters of fringy materials. And today we are going to be covering some historical facts. These are all very proven things. There's little speculation involved in it all, as there always is. But this is well documented, widely accessible. There are many different people talking about it out there. But if you are looking with your New Year's resolution to bone up on some education, then bone we shall today. Let's get down to it. I think a good way to break this down is to talk about Operation Paperclip. Well, it is a U.S. operation which take place just after World War II. To set it up, I find it is important to talk about the end of World War One, although technically never happened. It is canon to the story. It's like the movies to Dragon Ball. Although technically don't exist, they are canon, so we do need to bring it up.
1: World War I didn't happen?
0: Yeah. Remember we covered that in the Mandela Effect. Right. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the actors coming up from World War One in canon to World War II. From there, I'm going to talk about what actually happened during World War II, the ending of it. Chelsea is then going to talk about Operation Paperclip from there. So... To begin our story, I think it is important to talk about a little nation more commonly known as Russia, undergoing some growing pains, I guess is a apt way to describe it, moving from the backwards hillbilly arm of Europe and to what is going to be a fairly formidable opponent in the next 40
1: years. That was a beautiful way to describe it.
0: Okay, I'm glad you liked it. It is truly astounding the transformation this country undergoes. It goes from one of the poorest nations in the world to commonly thought of as number one or number two in the superpowers in the world in the span of 40 years and getting the first man into space. Like, it is crazy what happens here. I
1: I never thought of it that way. Yeah. I learned a whole bunch of new stuff on this episode, though, so. Okay, that's that's good. Added to the list.
0: So, canonically, Britain, France, and Russia formed a triple entente during World War I and allied themselves against the German forces. The US joined them as self styled associated power in March of 1917. An important thing happens in 1917, and that is that the Bolsheviks, Soviets, seized power in Russia in November, but German armies advanced rapidly across the borderlands while this was going on. The Allies responded with an economic blockade against all of Russia, and in early March of 1918, the Soviets followed through on the wave of popular disgust against the war that thrived in Russia, and accepted harsh German peace terms with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. In the eyes of the Allies, Russia now was helping Germany win the war by freeing up a million German soldiers on the Eastern Front, and by relinquishing much of russia's food supply industrial base fuel supplies and communications with western europe world war one was widely unpopular in russia and they were not equipped to actually fight this war they were losing badly the communists who took power basically said this is a widely unpopular war let's get out of it as fast as we can and they gave up basically all the borderlands. they gave up poland ukraine many of the border nations that had all of its infrastructure all of its farmland and although necessary to get it, out it pissed off its allies in general as helping the enemy keep fighting in this war okay according to historian spencer tucker the allies felt the treaty was the ultimate betrayal of the allied cause and sowed the seeds of the cold war from here And this is the big part. The USSR repudiates all debts from the Tsarist era of Russia, commonly thought of as a bad move by fancy people the world over. And once World War One actually ends, in 1918, Britain sent in money and some troops to support the anti-Bolshevik white counter-revolution. This policy was spearheaded by Minister of War, and you wouldn't actually know this name, Winston Churchill.
1: I do know that name.
0: He decided he wanted to fight the communists early on in their civil war. As did France, Japan, and the United States, who also sent forces to help decide the Russian civil war in the whites favor. However, Lenin made peaceful overtures to Wilson and the American leaders responded by sending diplomat William Bullitt to Moscow. Allies ultimately rejected the ceasefire terms which Bullitt negotiated, believing that a white victory was imminent. And I don't know if many of you know this, but the October Revolution in Russia, despite the fact that all the international help sent to the whites, the Reds came out successful. Because of all of this going on, the USSR largely became a hermit state for the next 15 to 20 years. All history we know, right? Maybe. Okay. But then under FDR, the U.S. entered trade agreements with the USSR. This is after Lenin had died. Stalin is now in power. The long delay was caused by Moscow's repudiation of the Tsarist-era debts and its threats to overthrow capitalism using local communist parties. By 1933, these issues had faded and the opportunity for greater trade appealed to Washington. They did come to these agreements and they said at a later date, maybe we'll talk about the Tsarist debts they never end up getting around to it. So there is actually some communication between Russia and the U.S. at this time, which is building to a relationship. However, there are still very fancy and important people in the U.S. that are pissed off that they lost money in World War One. Of course. Then a man steps onto the stage known as Adolf Hitler in Germany, generally thought of as a bad person, but he also ends up becoming the person that kills Hitler. And how can the person that kills Hitler be all that bad? <laughs>
1: supposedly
0: supposedly yes if we were to believe the common story which isn't going to be disputed in this episode
1: i was just putting it out there yeah nobody saw him die <laughs> continue
0: okay adolf hitler comes onto the stage and the west embraces a position of appeasement to adolf hitler they signed the munich pact in 1938 which gave partial control of czechoslovakia to The Nazis. As you may know, Nazis and the Soviet Union had fairly opposite ends of the political spectrum views. For a long time, Stalin felt that Hitler was an enemy, that they were to fight fascism around the world, and that They also weren't in a position to take on Hitler on their own. So with the West taking on a view of appeasing Adolf Hitler, Russia felt stranded and they felt that their only way to proceed forward was to enter into an agreement with the Nazis. And I saw this described in two different ways on Wikipedia, on two different Wikipedia articles, so I wanted to read both of them just so you can see how like opposite these are. In 1939, after conducting negotiations with both the French and the British group and Germany regarding potential military and political agreements, the Soviet Union and Germany signed a commercial agreement providing for the trade of certain German military and civilian equipment in exchange for Soviet raw materials. And the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, commonly named after the foreign secretaries of the two countries, which included a secret agreement to split Poland and Eastern Europe between the two states. One description. Next one. In 1938-39, the Soviet Union attempted to form strong military alliances with Germany's enemies, including Poland, France, and Great Britain, but they all refused. In an effort to delay a Nazi invasion and build up the Soviet military, Stalin made a non-aggression pact with Hitler and received control of a large swath of Eastern Europe including the Baltic countries. The agreement provided for large sales of Russian grain and oil to Germany, while Germany would share its military technology with the Soviet Union. Ensuring the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact astonished the world and signaled the war would start very soon. French historian Francois Furet says, The pact signed in Moscow by Ribbentrop and Molotov on August 23, 1939, inaugurated the alliance between the USSR and Nazi Germany. It was presented as an alliance and not just an on aggression pact. Other historians dispute the characterization of this treaty as an alliance because Hitler secretly intended to invade the USSR in the future and do you see that like one kind of shows it as no alternative option as they were abandoned by other powers and the other says that they actively sought out this relationship i just found it interesting that they were both found on wikipedia just in different spots
1: yeah i find that a lot with wikipedia as well maybe that's why it's not a good resource or maybe it just gives you some good (laughs) good starting opinions on things yeah
0: But anyhow, regardless of what you think of this relationship, in June of 1941, the Nazis invaded the USSR in what is called Operation Barbaro, and that is ostensibly what severs the relationship. It's a lot of question about why the Soviet Union allied with the Nazis at that time. I don't think it's worth speculating at this time, as there's tons to talk about, and it's not as important to the topic at hand.
1: Okay, very good.
0: But before we actually get into the war, I wanted to talk about what America is doing this whole time. And it is a whole lot of sitting on the fence post. They had a hard time not liking the Nazis, a lot of them. This is all pre-war. There is still a lot during the war and after the war of people who really liked the Nazis, but I'm just going to focus on the pre-war times. Okay. There is, of course, Prescott Bush. Some of you may know who that is. For those of you who don't, it is great grandpa. Uh, no, sorry. Just grandfather to George Bush, the president from 2000 to 2008, and the father to George H.W. Bush, president from 1988 to 1992. Oh. He ran very many businesses that, I'm just going to say it this way, the Harriman papers in the Library of Congress show that Prescott Bush was a director and shareholder of a number of companies involved with thysse He is a fairly high up German Nazi who was trying to invest around the world. From October 20th, 1942, the alien property custodian seized the assets of UBC, of which Prescott Bush was a director. Having gone through the books of the bank, further seizures were made against the two affiliates. And the Holland American Trading Corporation and the Seamless Steel Equipment Corporation Mm. were also seized, of which Prescott Bush was involved. By November, the Silesian American Company, another of Prescott Bush's ventures, had also been seized. A report issued by the Office of Alien Property Custodian in 1942 stated of the companies that since 1939, these steel and mining properties have been in possession of and have been operated by the German government and have undoubtedly been of considerable assistance to that country's war effort.
1: Interesting.
0: Also, during this time, Prescott Bush gets implicated in what's called the Business Plot, which was Schneidley Butler, a fairly prominent military personality of that time, basically dated to Congress, that he was approached by many elite individuals within the U.S., that they wanted to overthrow the government and put him in as a dictator. Although most of his claims are thought to be overblown there is wide belief that there is something to what's called the business
1: plot i wouldn't doubt it by what you just said
0: that is an episode in itself that we could do in the future as well this is a video of a pro-nazi rally held at madison square garden in
1: 1939 what did you ask what we are actively fighting for under our charter. First, a social just white Gentile ruled United States. Second, Gentile controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow directed domination.
0: So I think that gives you a good idea of what i'm trying to say there
1: yeah it's always like disturbing to see something like that one because we now know what the nazis were up to i don't know if they knew at that time fully and like people are so easily manipulated and you look at that, and I just feel like with all the hatred that's being spewn right now, it would be so easy to do that again, to turn like everybody against, because there's already against one another.
0: I think it's important to talk about this just because it's taken as a given at this time now that the Nazis were the bad guys by at least a majority of people in the Western world. This was not the case pre-World War II. There was a distinct split within society on which side was actually right in this war, there were two fairly prominent groups in the U.S., one was called the Friends of New Germany. I could not find account of how many people were involved in the Friends of New Germany, but there was them, and they ended up getting taken over by the, not taken over, but the Friends of New Germany dissolved in the 1930s, and the German-American Bund took over in 1935. And I do believe that the man that was speaking was, was Fritz Kuhn, who was the leader of the German-American Bund. And that lasted until America formally joined the war in 1945 one. Their registry was fairly significant. At least in New York, they were able to sell out Madison Square Gardens at the time and had a large group in Chicago. Although again, I could not find their official count as to how many people were involved in each group.
1: I wouldn't imagine you could very easily. Yeah, at this point.
0: And it wasn't just the US population at large that was split on what would actually happen here. Many US corporations saw that there was money to be made in Germany at this time, or at least didn't back away from making money in Germany at the time. Kodak. Subsidiaries of the Eastman Kodak Company traded with Nazi Germany long after America had entered the war. Archived documents provide a glimpse of the attitude of some U.S. and British government officials during that period who were unwilling to impose any sanctions against the firms, recommending instead that Kodak continue trading to preserve its market position. As you do. IBM is a U.S. company and in Germany asked IBM to record the internment, movement, execution and ethnic backgrounds of citizens throughout Europe. Not only did IBM do this and think it was okay, but they trained Nazis to use their equipment, which also stayed as the property of IBM that entire time. Wow. GM, in 1935, built a military factory in Berlin and was the reason that the Nazis were able to invade Poland and the rubber they provided is credited as being the biggest reason Germany was in a position to wait World War
1: Two. Oh, what? I mean, that's not funny, but like, that's a pretty crazy fact. I mean, it's you leave it, it can come down to one like big corporation, and they're like, "Nah, we can make money."
0: Yeah. And there's, of course, the Ford Motor Company. Although they are implicated themselves, I more so wanted to focus on Henry Ford, whom Hitler kept a portrait of in his office. And Henry Ford also was awarded the Grand Cross of the German Eagle on his 75th birthday on July 30th, 1938. He never distanced himself from the Nazis, never offering to return the award. He held on to it his entire life. And Russian slaves were used in the Ford factory in Cologne some 1,200, most of whom who died. Wow. Ford was on the committee of the America First Association to stay out of World War II as well.
1: Wow. That's some heavy stuff that I didn't know.
0: Yeah. And the U.S. had already seen a wave of communism sweep through it a little bit. It wasn't as successful In the US as other parts of the world like Russia, but from jail, Eugene Debs, who ran to be president under the Socialist Party of the US, received over a million votes in 1920. And in 1948, Henry Wallace received just under 1.2 million votes for president running under the Communist Party in the US. Hmm. So there's pushback from the other side with those parties as well. All of this kind of leads to the US, first off, staying out of the war for a long time, it being very unpopular, eventually getting involved. But the rise of right-wing populism, fascism with a lot of these groups, these people don't go away. They just turn into anti-communists after the war and continue on with life. And I think it's important to make a note of this when we're talking about what's going to happen because these people still exist during and after the war. And I think they play an important factor in what happens.
1: The corporations? Not
0: just the corporations. There are such a large amount of people in the U.S. who at least side with non-intervention because they don't think the Germans are being as bad as it turns out they are.
1: Right, yes, yeah.
0: And just staying out of it. But back to the war front now. So starting in 1941, the Soviet Union bore the brunt of the Nazi war machine and played perhaps the most important role in the Allies' defeat of Hitler. By one calculation, for every single American soldier killed fighting in Germany, 80 Soviet soldiers died doing the same.
1: Oh. Hold on, American soldiers in Germany?
0: Yes, against Germany.
1: Am I about to sound really dumb here? I thought that, hold on, I thought America was in the war with Japan.
0: They were on both fronts. There are two distinct portions of World War Two. There's the European theater and then the Pacific yes. theater, which comes after Europe.
1: And the Americans were in the European theater?
0: They were in both and that's, you would know this because they entered Europe on D-Day.
1: okay. I do know that. Why did I think they weren't there? I'm not a history buff. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Just to
0: get this important part in here, Germany enters Russia and they get fairly far into Russia and then they get stalled at what is the town known as Leningrad, which eventually becomes Stalingrad. I can't remember what it's known as today. I think it's St. Petersburg, but I can't remember off the top of my
1: head. Yeah, that just came up actually.
0: But they were able to hold the Nazis at Leningrad, from 1941 until 1944, and then finally they were able to push back against the Nazis and start winning land from them. Of course, the start of the war had been shaped by Nazi-Soviet pact to carve up the lands in between their borders. Hitler turned against the USSR. The Red Army was the main engine of the Nazism's destruction, writes British historian and journalist Marx Hastings. The Soviet Union paid the harshest price, however, though the numbers are not exact, an estimated 26 million Soviet citizens died during World War II, including as many as 11 million soldiers. At the same time, the Germans suffered three-quarters of their wartime losses fighting the Red Army. It was the Western Allies' extreme good fortune that the Russians and not themselves paid almost the entire butcher's bill for defeating the Nazis, accepting 95% of the military casualties of the three major powers of the Allies. The epic battles that eventually rolled back the Nazi advance, brutal winter siege of Stalingrad, clash of thousands of armored vehicles at Kursk that had no parallel on the Western front, where the Nazis committed fewer military assets. The savagery on display was also of a different degree than what was experienced farther west. And Eisenhower, who went on to become president in the 1950s, this is from his direct diary. When we flew into Russia in 1945, I did not see a house standing between the western border of the country and the area around Moscow. Through this overrun region, Marshal Zhukov told me so many numbers of women, children and old men have been killed that the Russian government would never be able to estimate the total. With that, Leningrad was a major defeat for the Nazis. So much so that it actually changed up their tactics. Germany had been developing rockets. There's the V1 and the V2. They have German names, but in English it translates to Vengeance. Their names are literally Vengeance 1 and Vengeance 2. By late 1941, while the war is going good on the Eastern Front, Hitler thought the V2 rocket, which is a rocket-propelled missile, which could go about 320 kilometers, was not particularly impressive, and he opined that it was merely an artillery shell with a longer range and a much higher cost. But early September of 1943, Hitler was sufficiently impressed by the enthusiasm of his developer and needed a quote-unquote wonder weapon to maintain German morale, so he authorized the deployment of it in large numbers. At the beginning of the Russian front, it was thought of as a side project that would just be merely for fun. And by the end of it, it became kind of the go-to military plan because they needed something because they were losing the manpower fight, mostly due to what was happening on the Russian front, as we just talked about. What is the V-2 rocket? The German V-weapons, V-1 and V-2, cost the equivalent in development of around US $40 billion in 2015 dollars. Which was 50% more than the Manhattan Project that produced the atomic bomb. V2s were built at a cost of approximately 100,000 Reichsmarks, or 2.37 billion pounds in 2011 dollars, so about 5 billion dollars US. Each. 3,225 were launched. What? Yep. Wow. General Hans Kammler, who was an engineer, had constructed several concentration camps, including Auschwitz, and had a reputation for brutality, and had originated the idea of using concentration camp prisoners as slave laborers in the rocket program. And more people died manufacturing the V-2 than were killed by its deployment. Wow. A quote... From Freeman Dyson, those of us who were seriously engaged in the war were very grateful, to Warner von Braun. We knew that each V2 costs as much to produce as a high-performance fighter airplane. We knew that the German forces on the fighting fronts were in desperate need of airplanes, and that the V2 rockets were doing us no military damage. From our point of view, the V2 program was almost as good as if Hitler had adopted a policy of unilateral disarmament. The V-2 consumed a third of Germany's fuel alcohol production and major portions of other critical technologies. To distill the fuel alcohol for one V-2 launch required 30 tons of potatoes at a time when food was becoming scarce. Due to a lack of explosives, some warheads were simply filled with concrete, using kinetic energy alone for destruction, and sometimes the warheads contained photographic propaganda of German citizens who had died in Allied
1: bombs what and they spent so much money on it just to fill it with concrete?
0: yeah it was at this point they were desperate to actually do something and this is what they had the psychological effect of the v2 was considerable as the v2 traveling faster than the speed of sound gave no warning before impact there was no effective defense and no risk of pilot and crew casualties an example of the oppression it made is in the reaction of american pilot and future nuclear strategist and congressional aide william liscom Borg, who in 1944 while returning from a nighttime mission over Holland saw a V-2 in flight on its way to strike London. It resembled a meteor, streaming red sparks and whizzing past us as though the aircraft were motionless. I became convinced that it was only a matter of time until rockets would expose the United States to direct transoceanic attack. With the war all but lost regardless of the factory output of conventional weapons, the Nazis resorted to V-weapons as a tenuous last hope to influence the war militarily. As an extension of their desire to punish their foes, and most importantly, to give hope to their supporters with their miracle weapons, the V-2 had no effect on the outcome of the war, but it led to the intercontinental ballistic missiles of the Cold War, which in turn were used for space exploration. The offensive began on September 7, 1944, when two were launched at Paris. Both crashed soon after launch. On 8th of September, a single rocket was launched at Paris, which caused modest damage near Port d'Italia two more launches by the 485th followed including one from the Hague against London on the same day at 6:43 p.m. The British government initially attempted to conceal the cause of the explosions by blaming them on defective gas mains and the public therefore began referring to V2s as flying gas pipes. The Germans themselves finally announced the V2 on November 8, 1944, and only then on November 10, 1944 did Winston Churchill inform parliament and the world that England had been under a rocket attack for the last few weeks. And over the following months, from basically October to the end of the war, 3,172 V2 rockets were fired at the following targets. 1,664 were fired at Belgium, 1,610 of which were fired at Antwerp. 1,402 were fired at the United Kingdom, 1,358 of which were fired at London, 43 at Norwich. France had 76 fired at it, 25 of which were fired at Lille, and Paris had 22, 19 were fired at the Netherlands, and 11 ended up being fired at Germany itself. This is coming to the end of my part. This is really important. The turn to manufacturing the V2s led to the factories being developed and built in an area known as Middlework, which is now just outside of modern-day Nordhausen. Which is squarely in what would become East Germany after World War II. The Soviets gained possession of the V2 factories after the war and reestablished the V2 production and moved it to the Soviet Union upon the completion of the war and the split of East and West Germany. With that, I think I have set up. What you are now about to talk to fairly nicely.
1: I think it does too.
0: Any questions about any of that, Chelsea?
1: I don't think so. I'm like not a war buff. So a lot of this is like I get the general idea of what. I
0: fully happens. just learned about the V2 and its significance at the end of World War two. Yeah. During this research. I had no idea that these rockets were five.
1: There's definitely a lot that I've just learned brand new. Some of it I can't say that I might not have learned before and I just forgot about it, but...
0: And just to add one more thing, the Nazis were also the first space-faring... Group as they launched one of the V2 rockets straight up and it breached the atmosphere.
1: It wasn't manned though, right?
0: It was not manned at all. It was the first man made object that was oh propelled. God,
1: I did not know that either. Yeah, I did learn a lot there. Some of the things when it comes to just logistics just are a little bit over my head though. Anyhow, I'm going to, this was a really good setup for me and I'm going to start with Operation Overcast. This one's a progression. I just want to start out by saying Taylor didn't really get to the many, many long boring names. Um, I have a lot of them in my part. It was really unavoidable. Um, I don't have all of the long boring names. We could do an episode just on long boring names. With that, Here we go. To set the scene on Operation Overcast, though it has probably been in the works for the whole time Taylor's been talking, kind of. In the later part of World War II, Germany started shitting the bed and was at a logistical disadvantage after failing Operation Barbarossa. And this failure depleted German resources and left the Germans unprepared to defend against the Red Army. So what Germany does in early 1943 is recall scientists, engineers, rocketeers, and technicians from combat. And once the Germans located these intellectuals, they were then vetted for their political and ideological reliability. And they returned to work in research and development in an attempt to strengthen German defense. This is done mostly in Monday, probably totally wrong, which is in northeast coastal Germany. That's where Werner Ozenberger comes in, which is the engineer scientist heading the Wehrforshung Sky Mineshaft, which also goes by Defense Research Association. And Werner records the names of the politically cleared intellectuals, which become the Ozenbrunner List, reinstating these men to the scientific work. So I'm gonna cut it there, just on the update of where we're at with Germany. And meanwhile, slash slightly into the future, but trust me, this is all gonna tie together and be related. February 1945, as the war is winding down, Germany looks like they're gonna lose and the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary force aka Shafe, which was the headquarters of the commander of allied forces in northwest europe which was by the way headed by dwight d eisenhower they set up t-force which amazing name by the way t-force it is a joint u.s british army mission i know this is a lot to wrap your head around especially with names like supreme headquarters allied expeditionary force there's a lot of those i told you long boring names I do like that it
0: was a supreme headquarter at least.
1: Yeah, it seems to me like the Venture Bros and there's all these like random bad guys, that's just what it reminds me of with these like long names. T-Force's mission was to find and take German scientific and industrial technology targets before they could be destroyed slash lost by the Germans or looters during the final stages of the war, which is World War II.
0: I saw that on Wikipedia also, and a lot of people talking about it. I think it downplays the fact that what they were really concerned about, everybody knew at this point that there was going to be some sort of conflict between the East being the Soviet Union. Yes. And the West being the US and the allies over there.
1: Yeah, it's pretty loaded. And
0: all of the facilities, and by extension, the scientists helping the development in these facilities was on the eastern side of Germany, And Russia was coming in from the East. Nobody knew where they were going to stop or what they were going to claim. It wasn't just vandals they were worried about. It was the fact that they were worried about it falling into Russian hands. Yes.
1: It's loaded. There's a lot of things that they're trying to get at with this. They're trying to get these targets for various reasons, like Taylor just mentioned as well, so that it's not lost forever, et cetera, et cetera. They... Being the T Force, also wanted to impede Germany's ability to complete the post war political and economic spheres and give a boost to the nations involved. This also meant preventing Nazi technology from getting into the hands of the Soviet Union or destroying what could not be seized. And T Force's activities can be seen as the start of the Cold War. Although Taylor mentioned the start of the Cold War going back even further than that. So there's just a lot of things building up to the Cold War at this point.
0: Basically, when the Soviet Union went communist is when some people say the Cold War truly started. It really depends
1: on when you want to say it started.
0: You can make a case for it all the way up to the end of
1: World War II. And at what point you read on the Wikipedia page. (laughs) Yes,
0: and which would you be in the pick?
1: T-force grows quickly and examine 5,000 German targets with a high priority on synthetic rubber and oil catalysts, new designs and armored equipment, B2 rocket weapons, jet and rocket propelled aircraft, naval equipment, field radios, secret writing chemicals, aeromedicine research, gliders and scientific and industrial personalities, which just nicely means people, I guess. Let's not forget or also learn as I did, maybe it'll just be me learning, that the Nazis were in a race with the Americans to develop the nuclear bomb. I didn't know that. So this is just to name a lot of things that T-Force had its eye on. They set up, being T-Force again, an enemy personnel exploitation section To manage and interrogate these human targets and set up a detention center in Paris. And then it's later moved to Kranzberg Castle, located outside of Frankfurt. And this interrogation center was nicknamed "dustbin," which is a very creative name, just like all the other names we've come across so far. So then... Only slightly related, (laughs) not entirely related. March 1945, a Polish laboratory technician finds pieces of the Ozenberg list. See, I told you it would connect. whole thing connects. In a toilet at Bonn University. If you'll remember, that is a list of all the German scientists that were pulled off the front lines to go develop scientific things.
0: To go science.
1: Yeah, to go science. They needed to go science instead of fighting this list finds its way to the secret intelligence service of the united kingdom and then they send it to the u.s intelligence so way to go werner i guess you just shouldn't make a list like that so not the only Werner
0: that comes up (laughs) yeah
1: it's not it was a very popular name and i'm not sure why werner would go throw this list down the toilet it might not have even been him lesson to be learned don't make a list like that they found out anyway anyhow obviously u.s army major robert staver chief of jet propulsion section of the research and intelligent branch of the u.s army Ordnance corps who's involved in the project uses this list to compile another list of probably the same names of German scientists to be captured and interrogated. The other list was in the toilet, so he had to make this new one. And at the top of his list was Werner von Braun, and he's come up, I think, already.
0: It was a note thanking Werner von Braun for pushing the V-2 rockets because it took money away from other military technologies.
1: Yes, so he was mentioned briefly, and briefly there again because I'm on to something else. And if you'll remember from just a moment ago major staver his original intent with operation overcast was only to interview the scientists on the list that was it apparently and upon interviewing the scientists what he learned from them changed the operation's purpose and on may 22, 1945 major staver transmits to the pentagon headquarters colonel joel holmes telegram urging the evacuation of German scientists and their families as most important for the Pacific war effort this meant know-how on advanced technology like infrared that could be used in the war against Japan what technology had been passed to Japan and halting their research obviously with all these acronyms and nicknames being thrown around there needed to be just one more and their tongue twisters this leads to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff establishing the first secret recruitment program. Operation Overcast is official, established July 20th, 1945. The reason this was created was not just for another fancy name, no, no. It was to assist in shortening the Japanese war and to aid there the U.S. post-war military research. Overcast was the name given by the German scientist family members for the housing camp where they were held in Bavaria. In late summer 1945, the Joint Chiefs of Staff also established the JOA, Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency. See, I told you, they're all just really long name agencies.
0: Yeah, the U.S. doesn't get good at uh, acronyms for at least... Probably twenty years when NASA. Yeah, came and down. it really
1: like to me this just makes it all the more confusing because like what is going on? And I had to read this quite a bit to wrap my head even a little bit around it. So the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency is a subcommittee of the Joint Intelligence Community, which was directly responsible for Operation Overcast and later Operation Paperclip. Spoiler alert! You didn't see that coming, did you? So the GOA representatives included the Army's Director of Intelligence, the Chief of Naval Intelligence, the Assistant Chief of Air Staff 2, which is Air Force Intelligence, and a representative from the State Department. The goal of this agency was to harness German intellectual resources to help develop America's arsenal of rockets and other biological and chemical weapons and, of course, keep it away from the Russians. Must at all costs keep it away from the Russians. They also wanted to stop other countries where these scientists could logically immigrate to from gaining this knowledge, which were Nazi sympathizing countries where they already had escape plans in place, being Spain, Argentina, and Egypt, to name the ones they were most worried about. Although President Harry Truman forbade the agency from recruiting any Nazi members or active Nazi supporters, I'm sure we all know where this is going. Many of the recruits, if not all of them, were obviously Nazis. Intelligence was crucial to the country's post-war efforts, so the agency whitewashed and eliminated incriminating evidence of war crimes from the scientists' records. Plus, all the intellectuals were pulled off of the front lines, right? So they were totally harmless and had nothing to do with being actual Nazis. They did nothing wrong. Some of the duties of this agency that I was just talking about, the GEOA, we can remember what that acronym stands for because i can't the duties include administrating the operation paperclip policies slash operation overcast compiling dossiers more than 1500 about nazi and foreign scientists engineers and technicians and being the liaison to british intelligence officers executing similar scientific intelligence projects In a secret directive circulated September 3rd, 1946, President Truman officially approves Operation Paperclip and expands it to include 1,000 German scientists under temporary limited military custody as this was for the greater good. As we heard, I think, a lot in this episode, I think even with our opening. Yeah. Yeah. In November 1945, Operation Overcast was renamed Operation Paperclip by Ordnance Corps officers who would attach a paperclip to the folders of those rocket experts whom they wished to employ in America. It was also renamed because Camp Overcast, the name of the scientist headquarters, as we discussed like a couple minutes ago, became known locally and needed to be changed. So we move on to, but not really, Operation Paperclip. It's just official at this time. I know Taylor already said what Operation Paperclip is. I don't know why I'm talking about it now because maybe it's because it's newly formed now. So what we know Operation Paperclip as today is really everything I've been talking about under different names, but that just brings us to the official happenings. It's an intelligence program of the United States where more than 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians along with their families were taken from Nazi Germany to the United States of America for government employment after the end of World War II. That being said, the Office of Special Investigations estimated around 10,000 Nazi war criminals entered the U.S. from Eastern Europe after World War II. The whole thing takes place between 1945 and 1959 but most nazi collaborators entered the u.s through the Displaced Persons Acts and the Refugee Relief Act of 1953. Supporters of the act showed only a slight awareness that Nazi war criminals would enter the U.S. through them, and most of the concern was disallowing known communists from entering. This shift in focus was likely due to the pressure of the Cold War in the years after World War II, when the U.S. focused on countering Soviet communism more than the Nazis, obviously this time yeah and
0: i think that really looking at that history i set up shows why they were very happy to move on to communism bad let's stop worrying about
1: the nazis it it all makes sense it is still concerning yes by now with all of this set up, it's obviously easy to look the other way about war crimes when you have the cold war and the space race happening which was the primary purpose of operation paperclip kind of I feel like it had a million different purposes. I do like that they say... That they're only bringing them in to help these war efforts, but a lot of them just end up staying forever and retiring. Well, and I always
0: find it so weird when somebody says we're doing it for the greater good. It can't even just be for good because the things they're doing are so ethically heinous. Yeah. That they they can't even just say good. They say, no, no, this good is so good. it's, It's greater good. So we can do better. Like
1: we can't even consider an alternate. It's so good. We could not even entertain the option of saying no. Wasn't even in the vocabulary at that time. Yeah. The focus then kind of gets on to getting better, faster, and more precise aircraft, which was essential for future wars. But also, just to add to things, A short 12 years after World War II, the first satellite was launched by Russia. And many of the German scientists had made leaps forward in rocket technology, which this ended up being the biggest reaper of fruit or goods or something. Operation Paperclip, which was the space program. The knowledge these scientists brought with them was quickly incorporated into American designs. And many of these scientists gained prominent positions. Just an aside here. I thought this the whole time I was doing my research. Like, why were German scientists so good? Like, why did they just make this go leaps and bounds in a short amount of time where, like, nobody else in america could
0: germany was a hotbed for science for a long time leading into world war ii oh yeah and especially it was set to become the world superpower without the wars getting involved they would have been
1: wow i didn't know that
0: yeah it was just up until the start of the 1900s germany was not a country germany was an amalgamation well it was a bunch of feudal empires Prussia being the biggest of them, which has only been brought together in the early 1900s under Otto von Bismarck. What is the other guy's name? Anyways.
1: Otto Otto von, von Bismarck.
0: Bismarck, yes.
1: That's catchy. But yeah, I'm glad you could answer that because-
0: Kaiser Wilhelm, who was the ruler of the newly joined German country. Italy also has a very similar history in that it, it is unique in that fascism took over in Italy and Germany the way it did. Because these are two countries, because they became a nation so late in the game, they really missed out on empire building and the colonies. So really one of the definitions I've heard that I quite like for fascism is bringing colonialism home. I I don't know if that quite makes sense to you, but because they missed out on empire building, they had to look at other ways of doing it. So they created underclasses at home who were used to create the necessary levels of power above them.
1: Okay. That makes more sense to me now. I just needed it explained to me. But yeah, I'm glad you could answer my question. Part of it,
0: too, is because there was a hyper militarization of Nazi Germany, there was funding thrown at places for war efforts.
1: Obviously. One of those
0: war efforts was creating war weapons, one of which was the V2.
1: Which had like billions of dollars, like lots of billions of dollars thrown at it.
0: Oh, yeah. But way too much money. That.
1: That's crazy. But okay, yeah. that answers that because this and whole time I was like, why is everyone all the brain power in Germany?
0: Yeah. And so part of it's that, um, and in fact, Germany lost a lot of uh, its brain power just prior to the war. I think this is a good time to bring it up. Not all German scientists who came over around this time were Nazis. Two months after Adolf Hitler was appointed chancellor, the German Government issued the Gesetz zur Weiterhestestellung des Barofs the law for the restoration of the professional civil service. With some exceptions, none of which lasted for long, the April 7, 1933 law ordered that those in government positions who had at least one Jewish grandparent or were political opponents of the Nazi Party be immediately dismissed. Oh. Thousands of these people lost their jobs as teachers, judges, police officers, and academics at the country's top universities. Many of these people fled. If you were communist, you fled east. If you were Jewish, you fled west. Many people came over prior to World War II as German scientists, but they were not Nazis. They fled because of the Nazis. And a 2016 study found that 15% of physicists were dismissed from German universities at this time. And those 15% of physicists accounted for 64% of all German physics citations. And I think part of really why the U.S. was able to get involved in even the nuclear research that they were was due to these physicists that were dismissed, like Oppenheimer and Einstein, who came over at this
1: time. Yes. Okay. I'm glad you put a name to that.
0: But that's my little bit to add there. Uh, you can continue with what you Okay.
1: I mean that's that's all I really have to say about Operation Paperclip. I don't know if you have anything else to add, even though you just did.
0: Not really. Okay. I, I think it is point to be I think you're gonna get into that not all these people are coming over with clean hands as the governments implied. Yeah.
1: Um, so I do have a few brief mentions of people who are coming over here. There are, like I said, there were a lot of people that came over. I just picked out a few that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. I just want to touch on a few and let you know of the goings on. First, I have George Ricky. I'm sure that's not how you say it, but makes sense to me. He worked as an engineer at one of Nazi Germany's largest factories and was responsible for several of the country's most powerful bombs. After being brought to the U.S. under Operation Paperclip, he was accused of close ties with the SS and the Gestapo, as well as getting workers from concentration camps. He was the only recruit to be returned to Germany for trial, and he was acquitted and never returned to the United States.
0: I actually have a little bit to add about Ricky. Oh, okay. Werner von Braun, who is the biggest name that came over in Operation Paperclip, he ends up being the first head of NASA and absolutely paramount in them getting to the moon in the 1960s. He was asked to interview and basically take the stand at the Nuremberg trials with regards to Ricky because they believed that there was information that they didn't have that von Braun... Had, and he just happened to be on vacation when inspectors came to talk to him about this. Orr von Braun was located to Alabama, and he needed basically permission to go on vacations or leave at any time. And it just so happened that he was on vacation at the time they came to talk to him about this. What a weird coincidence.
1: That's such a weird coincidence. So next german scientist i have brought over walton schreiber he was one of the later recruits of operation paperclip heading to the u.s in 1951 He got the Americans' attention after escaping Russian custody. He was one of the Nazis' top medical scientists. He worked in medical research for the Air Force, but not long after a Holocaust survivor accused him of being involved in medical experiments committed at Ravensbrück concentration camp. If the allegations were confirmed earlier, he would have been tried at Nuremberg. Instead, he chose to go to Argentina and nothing really happened to him other than going to argentina fan favorite Werner von braun if you've never heard of anyone you've probably heard of this guy he was on the run when he was captured by the americans he also ran large factories in germany which were heavily staffed by slave labor while not directly implicated in war crimes survivors who were forced to work for him told of harsh treatments experienced and of course i mean it was slave laborers being used
0: i fully believe like i've done a lot of reading in the last little while on warner von braun Mm -hmm. the full story is not nor will it ever public be known of this
1: guy oh not at all especially since he comes over to the u.s and he has such a major role in doing so much
0: in rocket technology and space travel. Ter-
1: Which is something that really propelled the U.S. forward. So there's a lot that's never going to be known about him. I did find that fairly whitewashed as a, I mean... Just, I mean, that's anything I could find. He worked on sensitive projects, including both the American Ballistic Missile Program. All of these names, like, they're just tongue twisters, I swear. And the rockets that launched the first American space satellite, Explorer 1. Obviously, I've alluded that Von Braun was highly sought after, and he was considered America's format, form... Former, formal expert on space technology and his research group was incorporated into nasa he was chief architect at the saturn V launch vehicle which enabled human missions to the moon and von brown and debus debus he'll come up i'm not just saying that never coming back to him were involved in the design and launch of the apollo program and eventually oversaw the successful launch that put neil armstrong and buzz aldrin on the moon and I'm just going to jump quick to Kurt who who is closely tied with Von Braun. A pioneering rocket engineer, Debus would become first director of NASA's Launch Operations Center. Debus was named by Von Braun after seeing the bombs drop in Nagasaki and Hiroshima by manned aircraft to organize a division on missile firing. And in the early 1950s, they tested the first missiles carrying nuclear warheads. It is clear the states needed a better and faster way to deliver a deadly weapon. And in the early 50s, they tested the first missiles carrying nuclear warheads, deploying the powerful weapons into the Pacific Ocean. So both von Braun and DeBoos worked for the U.S. until they retired and were highly honored by the end of their careers. Von Braun was inducted into the National Academy of Engineering and received the National Medal of Science. D. Boos has an award named after him at the National Space Club of Florida and has a lunar crater named after him. Arthur Rudolph, one of Germany's top rocketry engineers and close ally of von Braun, much of his work took place at the Middlework Factory, a site staffed by prisoners from the Middlebau Dora concentration camps. Eventually, he defected to the U.S. and British forces and was incorporated into post-war U.S. Despite concerns over his background check describing him as an enthusiastic Nazi loyalist, but it was for the greater good. He worked on both the U.S. ballistic missile program and the Saturn V rocket under Von Braun. Rudolph was highly decorated and considered one of the program's most successful recruits. In 1984, under perceived threat of prosecution of his use of slave labor from mittelbau Dora concentration camp at the Middlework, he renounced his U.S. citizenship and moved to West Germany. He was called in and interrogated. There was a trade made for the U.S. not persecuting him that he would give up his U.S. citizenship and return to Germany. I guess at that point they got what they wanted out of him, and in 1983 he left the U.S. The recruits of Project Paperclip are dead now, but they built much of the infrastructure of NASA and the U.S. ballistic missile program that we know today.
0: This wasn't the only operation to ensure the movement of Nazi scientists. Russia had an equivalent plan, although it is very different in nature. Operation Oswavia Kim, It was the Soviet operation which took place on October 22, 1946, this is after the war, when the Soviet Army unit removed more than 2,200 German specialists with a total of more than 6,000 people including family members from the Soviet occupation zone of World War II Germany for employment in Soviet Union. Most of those people served on a five-year contract just outside of Moscow where they trained and provided their expertise to Soviet scientists, and then were allowed to do what they will. Most of them returned to Germany or stayed in Soviet Union, depending on what they wanted
1: That is very different.
0: I Yeah, I found it very different. Some of them said it was deplorable conditions. Others described it as the exact same conditions as the other scientists, and fairly comfortable by Soviet Union standards. It was really a fixed-term contract for all of them.
1: So weird that the U.S. was in such a crunch to take these scientists away from and with that, I think that's all we have for now on, what is this, Project Paperclip?
0: Project Paperclip at the end of the day, that's what we talked about, yes. So that's the story of the greater good winning over and thankfully allowing the Nazis to get us to space. <laughs> One question that I had when I was doing this research is the Nazis weren't just the Nazis. They were the Axis powers of Japan, Germany, and Italy. hmm But Project Paperclip only talks about Germany. Now, why is that? I found that odd. And
1: I find that is tied with my question of like, why German scientists? Like, why is that what we thought, or not we, United States thought was like what they needed to do all of this?
0: Yeah. And a lot of that does have to do with the V2. Italy isn't a question at all because Russia and Italy do not share a border at this time. I use the term Russia and USSR interchangeably this entire time. When I use Russia, I mean the greater USSR, because the borders need to make sense for what we're talking about generally. Italy had surrendered earlier on, and the Western allies were able to plunder what they wished from those scientists already. Germany was directly on the border with Russia. They had rocket technology. They were the greater power compared to Italy. Maybe
1: that's why. But that
0: meets the question of why not Japan? Yeah. There are reasonable answers that I have found, one of which is that Russia and Japan were never on good terms. In fact, fun fact of the day, technically World War II still continues on to this day because Japan and Russia have never signed a peace treaty.
1: (laughs) I didn't know that.
0: They actually are still fighting over an island in the northern part of Japan as to who actually controls it. Huh. And the last time there were talks in 2019 between Japan and Russia about signing a peace treaty to formally end World War II. And there is no update from it. So it is still technically ongoing.
1: You learned it here on Journey to the Fringe. Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, the other part of it is ethnocentrism maybe a bit of xenophobia i think is better described as ethnocentrism we didn't even know what japanese scientists were working on therefore they had no idea what scientists they would want to recruit whereas when you're looking at it like when they're talking about like physics and rocket propulsion technologies. A lot of the professors and uh, intellectuals in America would know which prominent professors and intellectuals in all of Europe were working on the same technologies or were experts in their field because it's all shared intellect. Yeah. So part of it is they just didn't know which Japanese scientists were worthwhile and what they were working on. And the last little bit of it is racism in the sense that they did not think Japanese scientists will be able to easily adapt into American society.
1: All good answers.
0: And that is why this all revolves around Nazis. And we will we'll talk about feudal Japan at a later date, or I guess um, Imperial Japan is the correct way to describe it at a later date. We've talked about it before that we will do an episode on their war crimes. At this time, though, we're just going to leave it at that. And that is the story of why Nazis got us to the moon and why they still may be there. If you believe what's the name of that movie, is it Iron Sky or it's Nazis on the dark side of the moon?
1: Oh, I don't know.
0: It's a good movie. I'd Sounds re-
1: like a movie I want to watch.
0: I think it's Iron Sky. Yep, Iron Sky. (laughs) It's a good movie. I highly recommend it. Proof that the Nazis both got to the moon and inhabit it to this day, waiting on uh, us to show our weaknesses. Yeah. But in the meantime, we'll leave it at that. That has been our explanation of why we had Nazis come over and Project Capriclip us out of how we got them here. Chelsea, any final thoughts? I
1: went through a wide range of emotions while researching this. It's nothing new on this podcast that I'm just always shocked by the ability to turn a blind eye to war crimes and atrocities that are to happen for the greater good i guess but
0: i think a big part of it too is the people that negotiate the peace treaties at the end of the war generally aren't part of the class who that had to fight the war so they emotionally can oh no
1: it's always the higher ups it's never those people who are fighting any war they're
0: able to stay out of it so they they can think about it in a quote unquote greater good sense.
1: Yes, they can because they're not affected by it the way people fighting in it and their families are like the people living in their countries. Yeah. Yeah. But those are my thoughts on it. I think at the
0: end of the day, we all just formed a little bit of emotions over an inanimate object that is most commonly found in office praise, paperclips.
1: Ah, uh, Yes. The paperclip. Yeah,
0: the noble paperclip. And in the meantime, we have been your noble podcast, Journey to the Fringe, giving you those fringy topics you crave the most and the education that you need having already made your New Year's resolutions. I have been Taylor.
1: As always, I have been Chelsea.
0: We will leave you with that and we will see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what